I encourage you, if you have a Bible at hand, to turn to Psalm 2. I think you'll find it a great help as you go through this today under the title, Kiss the Sun. Kiss the Sun. I was asked the question, which do you think of all the Psalms is the most quoted Psalm in the New Testament? Which is the most quoted Psalm in the New Testament? I wonder what you think. You may think, well, maybe Psalm 23, the Lord's my shepherd. Is it maybe the most quoted? Or Psalm 46, God is our strength and refuge. Or Psalm 121, I to the hills shall lift my eyes. Or Psalm 139, where can I flee from your spirit? I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Or maybe Psalm 119, 176 verses in that psalm, all about God's Word. Maybe it's the most quoted. Well, actually, all of those psalms I've just mentioned are never quoted in the New Testament at all. The psalms that are the most quoted in the New Testament, you'll see coming up here, Psalm 110, which is the psalm which speaks about the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand about the coronation of Jesus. Psalm 69 and 22, which are psalms actually about the suffering of Jesus, and Psalm 2, which is the psalm that we're looking at today. And the thing that all these psalms have in common, and the reason why they're most quoted is they're messianic psalms, or psalms which clearly point and speak about Jesus, written maybe a thousand years before Jesus existed, but clearly speaking about Him. Last month, we were looking at Psalm 1, which we said is like an introduction to the whole book of Psalms, and Psalm 2 is as well. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 need to be taken together. Psalm 1 is about the right path in life, focusing on God's law and following God's truth. And Psalm 2 then is about God's Son, having Him, God's King, in the right place within our lives. But the first thing we see in this psalm is the world's rebellion in verses 1 to 3. And here we see the very heart of the world around us. There are words here in these verses which speak of aggression and anger against God and against His rule. Words like rage and plot and against. Phrases like burst their bonds and cast away their cords. Highlight the rebellious nature of this world. A world which is at enmity with God. It's not a world that's neutral, and when we're sharing the gospel and seeking to witness people, we need to understand it. It's a world that is opposed to God. Sin creates that bias, that anti-God bias within every single human being. Psalm 2, its most famous New Testament use is probably Acts chapter 4. Do you remember that story, Peter and John, the healed a man who was lame at the gate, beautiful at the temple. They're brought before the Sanhedrin. They're told not to speak about Jesus, and then they are released. And after they're released, the believers join in prayer. And it says there in Acts 4 and verse 24, and when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's Psalm 2. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, 
whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. In Acts 4, the early believers, they understood the opposition they faced in the wider context of the world's opposition and rebellion against God and against His anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. The word anointed one, Hebrew is Messiah, Greek it is Christ. And the sad thing, there is an insanity in people's rebellion, which is highlighted here in Psalm 2 with the, the word why, the very first word of the psalm. Why do the nations rage? And you could almost put that word why before every of these statements. Why do the peoples plot in vain? Why do the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed? The big question is why? Why do people do this? This breaking of the bonds is believed to allude to like the the breaking of the, the chains of a yoke which an oxen would have had or they would have had on their shoulders as they pulled the plow or pulled the cart. And that should initially cause us to think of Jesus' words in Matthew 11. He says, Come to me, all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And this is the, the craziness of this. This is the madness of this rebellion. It's against one who is so gentle, so lowly, so humble, so caring, so loving. That's why it is so crazy. That's why it, it is madness when people resist Christ and rebel against Christ. It's madness when we don't follow His truth and follow His ways. The challenge here today is are you in rebellion against this Jesus? Are you still failing to bow and surrender before Him? So here we have the world's rebellion against God and against His anointed one. But then we have the Lord's defiance in verses 4 to 6. And the first thing we can see about this defiance in verse 4 is the derision. It says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. God is mocking the puny attempts of mankind to fight against him, to go against him, to rebel against him. We need to be reminded of what this God is like. In Isaiah chapter 40, it says this about this God. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as the dust on scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. All the nations are as nothing before him. They're accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Have you not been told from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, 
who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent and dwells to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like a stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. It's this majestic God. It's this God who put the stars in the sky and holds them in place. It's this God who spoke and all came into existence. It's this God who's so vast that people before him are like tiny little grasshoppers. It's this God that the tiny little grasshoppers are shaking their fists and rebelling against and they're seeking that they can overthrow. And God laughs at them. It's so laughable, except it's also so sad. There's derision, and then we see in verse 5, there is wrath. He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury. God's wrath is a settled indignation and opposition to all sin. The word wrath here comes from the word for for nose. It, it speaks of a snort. We think of a snort of a horse. It's a reaction to that which offends. God snorts at these people. He will terrify them in His fury, and some translate this as burning anger. Think of the story of Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, who they were sons of priests. They were priests themselves. They offer unauthorized offering to the Lord. And it wasn't just that they made a mistake. They were rebellious in their hearts. And God brings out fire from His presence to consume them in an instant. This is the God that we worship today. Yes, Jesus loves me. But He is the God also of wrath and judgment. Dale Ralph Davies says this, if you have imbibed a Western sentimental view of God as the great soppy softy in the sky, then you will not understand this picture. The picture of a God who, who laughs and scorn at people, a God whose wrath burns against people, is not a picture of God that the world paints today. That's a picture of the Bible. If people are not right with God, if people are not right with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, they need to be terrified of this God. He is a consuming fire. And then the third thing about God's defiance is rule in verse 6. It says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Despite all the rebellion against all the, the scheming and the plotting of the rulers of the world, God sets his king on Zion's hill. This would initially refer to the Old Testament and David conquering Jerusalem from the Jebusites, it was called Zion, and his descendants then ruling from there, speaking of God's rule. But its greater fulfillment is the ascension of the Lord Jesus into glory, where he reigns 
in heavenly Mount Zion now, at the right hand of the Father, in the place of all power and authority. And here there are echoes of the beginning of Psalm 110, the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, which says this, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. And that Psalm 110, it is the most quoted in the New Testament because it speaks of Christ's rule and His reign. And that was so important because that was the very truth that sustained and encouraged believers in their faith and in their witness for Christ in very troubling days. You think back to Acts 4 and Peter and John. They just had been released from the Sanhedrin who were breathing threats against them and threats against the believers and telling them not to speak about this Jesus anymore. They go and they pray. They focus on Psalm 2. They focus on the rule, the reign of Christ, that in everything that's happened, God is in control. God is working out His purposes. And the result of that is they pray to be bold, to be faithful, to keep being the witness that God calls them to be. It's this truth that sustains us, whether we're working with children or young people or adults, and we're struggling and we're not seeing much fruit. It's this that sustains. Christ rules. Christ is over everything. When there are challenges in our lives, when there are health problems, Christ rules. He reigns. It's this truth that sustains a believer and feeds our faith to persevere. So we have the world's rebellion, we have God's defiance, and then thirdly, we have the Messiah's reign in verses 7 to 9. This verse 7 here, it's one of the most quoted parts of Psalm 2 in the New Testament. Verse 7 says, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my God, today I have begotten you. Now, this verse is meant to be tremendously encouraging, yet it has troubled many Christians, and it is a verse that has been misused by many heretics, many false teachers, speaking against the eternal nature of Christ. Now, the word begotten here, you are my son, today I have begotten you, the word begotten here, it can mean to give birth to. And false teachers have argued that this speaks of a time when the Son of God was created by God the Father. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus was a created angel, uh, for example. In response to that, some have argued that this verse is referring to the incarnation, when the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, came into this world and was born of Mary in Bethlehem. Well, actually, this verse is not speaking about either of those things. This verse is not about the origin of the Messiah, but more about His standing as the Son of God. And the reason why I can say that is true is because that's not my idea. That's exactly what the Bible itself teaches us. In Acts chapter 13, Paul, when he was on that first missionary journey, he explains this verse to the people in Poseidon, Antioch. You see the verse coming up here. He says, And we bring you the good news 
that what God promised to the fathers, this He has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So, Paul is saying that phrase, today I have begotten you, it is speaking about the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul is arguing that I have begotten you, it is speaking of how the resurrection proves that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. So, when you read that phrase, today I have begotten you, it is speaking about God proving that Jesus is His eternal Son, stating He is my eternal Son, it is proved by His resurrection from the dead. Paul says something similar about the resurrection in the opening verses of the book of Romans. You'll see them come up. He says, concerning His Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God, in power according to the Spirit of holiness, by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. It's the same thing. The resurrection proves that Jesus was a man, but He wasn't just a man. He was this eternal Son of God who had come into this world and taken on human nature. And so, this verse 7 is so encouraging. It is, it is confirming that the one to come who will be born in Bethlehem is the eternal Son of God. The resurrection proves it. Now, having confirmed the, the standing of the Messiah, the status of the Messiah as the eternal Son of God, Psalm 2 then speaks of His reign in verse 8. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. Now, this verse about the nations being his inheritance, the ends of the earth being his possession, this was a verse that was greatly used to motivate the missionaries at the beginning of the modern missionary movement. Thinking about the 17 and the 1800s and early 1900s, what really motivated these missionaries was a verse like this, which spoke of that, but Jesus was to be the Savior. Jesus was to be the King, not just of people in the United Kingdom, but He is to be the Savior and King of people right across this world. And so, men and women armored with this, they stepped out into the unknown. Many even stepped to their deaths because they believed in this prophecy that Jesus was to reign in human hearts right across this world. And this speaks powerfully of what our task is as a church. Our task is about seeing the reign of Christ advance in people's hearts and lives. Sometimes we can get our focus wrong, and I know I can make this mistake as well. We, we get focused on, on what we're doing and our activities, and of course, we have to think about that. But we need to realize that our primary focus in everything we do is about advancing the reign of Christ in people's lives. Advancing the reign of Christ as people come to embrace Him as Savior and King. Advancing the reign of Christ as people who have embraced Him are enabled to be more and more obedient and allowing Him to be King in every area of their lives. We can get distracted 
and just about putting on a program or a schedule or running a meeting, I can do that. I can get distracted. And we can lose sight of, listen, this is our goal. It's seeing Jesus reign within the hearts of our children, our young people, or others. What point is there running meetings if we're not seeking for Christ to rule and to reign in people's hearts? This is the task of the church. But there's another aspect to Jesus' reign which it can't be ignored here. Look at verse 9. It says, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And this reminds us that other people will have their sin broken by the grace of the Messiah, or they themselves will one day be broken by the awesome power of Jesus as judge. So either he breaks your sin, or he breaks you. I remember in a church, there was a, a gentleman, he, he wasn't a Christian, and he, he complained to me that we didn't say the, the Lord's Prayer. I think he might have partly come from a Church of Ireland background, and he complained that we didn't say the Lord's Prayer. And I turned and I said, and listen, see when we pray, thy kingdom come, what are we praying for? And he didn't have an answer for me. Well, I says there's two things we're praying for. When we pray thy kingdom come, we're praying that people will come and yield their lives to Christ as King. But we're also praying that Jesus will come again and judge and condemn the wicked, that the King will put all his enemies under his feet. He never asked me again to, to say the Lord's Prayer. But this is what the church is about. Thy kingdom come. It's about seeing Christ reign within the hearts of men and women before that day of judgment comes. It's about seeing Christ ruling and that rule growing in the hearts of men and women. Think of how the Bible pictures it like a little seed, the kingdom, that grows and develops. Jesus wants that seed of his rule to be growing and developing as you go deeper and deeper with him and let him rule in every area of your life. That's what he calls for. And this leads us finally to the gospel's call in verses 10 to 12. In response to all that has been said about the rebellion of the world and the reign of the Messiah, it is now time to be wise, the psalmist says here in verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Now, the kings and the rulers are particularly singled out here with this warning and this call to be wise, because back in verse 2, they are the ones who were named as plotting against the Lord's anointed there in verse 2. So, those who are still rebelling against Christ are called be wise, called to be wise. They're warned not to keep doing this. Are you still rebelling against Jesus? If you're an unsaved person, why are you still shutting him out? It'll not go away. 
cap Christians against poverty. They talk about the danger of debt and how people just ignore it, hoping it'll go away, and they need to face up to it. And people do that about their debt of sin and the fact that one day they'll have to give an account. And they think, I'll just ignore it. I'll ignore this about getting right with Jesus. I'll ignore it and just let it go away. But he won't go away. He'll come again. You have to stop the rebellion. And this goes for us who are Christians as well. Is there an area of your life here today in which you're not letting Jesus be your king in the decisions you make, in how you speak, in what you do? What is the area of your life you don't want Jesus to rule over? Verse 11 should be the experience of all our lives. Look what he says there. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. You know, there's that cautiousness because he is a holy and majestic God, a glorious God, but there's a joy. Because when we come to know him and know his peace and know his forgiveness and we know we're in a right relationship with him and serve him in that right relationship, there's nothing to compare with it, with the joy that that brings. And then we're left with this final words, which remind us of the clear choice and the consequences of that choice. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. I remember just around the time of the queen's death and different people were sharing different uh, memories of the Queen, and there was somebody who was one of the privy councillors, I can't remember who it was, and he had to go, and when you become a privy councillor, the Queen holds out her hand, and you boost to just, with your lips, brush the hand, and uh, he didn't get it right, and he put a real smacker on the hand, it is, he sort of overbalanced him, it is, but that's what it's speaking about, kiss the sun, it's kissing the hand in surrender. And look what it says here. Those who kiss the Son are those who take refuge in Him. And those who don't kiss the Son are those who will receive His wrath. It is quickly kindled. It can come in a flash. We need to be ready. I can't remember the name of the film. There's a film... George Clooney is in it, and it's, he's on the phone, a satellite phone, to this sort of bad article. And he's just saying to this person, do you remember the pictures of Iraq and the Exorcet missiles that could go and just hit people anywhere? And basically saying, there's one about to hit you in your van, even where you are now. Judgment is coming. We must be ready. We must be safe. We must kiss the sun, lest he be angry. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. 
And thank you, Father, that in this world of rebellion and opposition to Jesus, Lord, you laugh at their puny efforts. You scorn in derision just their attempts to break off your bonds. But Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is your eternal son, and that is proved by the resurrection. We praise you that he is the one who has been given as an inheritance the very ends of the earth, all the nations. And we thank you that one day there will come this great multitude from every tribe and nation which can't be numbered, saved through his death. And we rejoice that all, Father, that you've given to your Son, all for whom your Son has died to redeem, will be part of that great multitude of the redeemed. May we know the grace to be part of that number. May this be a day when truly we kiss the sun. Father, we live in a land of no surrender. Father, may it be true of us with Jesus and true in every area of our lives. Not no surrender, but full surrender. For such grace we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.